Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 82, Dr. Oliver Crisp on Libertarian Calvinism and Universalism. Dr. Oliver Crisp is professor of systematic theology at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. Dr. Crisp came to Fuller in 2011 from the University of Bristol in the UK. He's here with us this week to discuss the idea of libertarian Calvinism from his latest book called Deviant Calvinism, Broadening Reformed Theology. Dr. Crisp, welcome back to the Trinity's podcast. Well, thank you once again for having me. It's a delight to be with you. Dr. Crisp, the idea in deviant Calvinism that's generated the most discussion online is what you call libertarian Calvinism. Can you explain what that idea is for us and why it's controversial? Absolutely. The Reformed tradition is often, in in the popular mind, associated with a particular way of thinking about human free will. And the concern that motivates this is the relationship between God ordaining what comes to pass. Of course, the Reformed are well-known for thinking that God ordains all things that come to pass, and how it is that that's consistent with us being free to choose to do various things uh, in a way that makes us morally responsible for those actions. Now, often it's reported that the Reformed tradition is all about what's sometimes called determinism. In other words, the idea that all that comes to pass is somehow determined by, you know, things, uh, other things causing things to happen now, whatever they may be. Of course, if you're a theological determinist and you think that it's God that causes the things that happen to happen ultimately and perhaps even proximately. Now, I take it that no uh, Christian theologian who is really interested in Christian orthodoxy is likely to be a hard determinist. In other words, someone who thinks that God ordains all that comes to pass and we don't have any freedom whatsoever. There are people who are theological determinists but they tend to be extremely eccentric and on the fringes of the Christian tradition. And certainly in terms of Christian theologians, major Christian theologians, I can think of no major Christian theologians who hold that view. But there are Christian theologians who hold uh, what's sometimes called a compatibilist view. And compatibilism is just the idea that this notion of determinism is compatible with me being free in some sense. So applied to a theological context, a theological compatibilist would say, well, God determines what comes to pass, but that's consistent with my being free in at least some of the choices that I make, provided our account of freedom is, as it were, thin enough that it can be made consistent with God determining all that comes to pass. And the kind of thin version of freedom that theological compatibilists have in mind goes like this. When I say I'm free in a particular action, what I mean is I do what I desire to do and nobody prevents me from doing what I desire to do. There are no obstacles in the way of my doing what I desire to do. There's not a tough band of sinewy men standing over me, me saying do one thing rather than another. No, when I say I do something freely, it's because I want to do it, I desire to do it, and I bring that thing about. So, for example... Do I kiss my grandmother or do I slap my grandmother? Well, of course, I kiss my grandmother because I love my grandmother and I wouldn't want to do anything to harm her. And so that's 
what I desire to do, that's what I bring about. Am I free in making that choice? The compatibilist says, yes, I'm free because it's what I wanted to do and I love my grandmother. But that is consistent with God determining me to be the kind of person that loves his grandmother and kisses his grandmother and so on. Now, it looks like on that account of theological compatibilism, my freedom is just about doing what I desire, and that's consistent with God determining the outcome. You don't need, necessarily anyway, you don't need what's sometimes called a principle of alternate possibility, so that at the moment of choice, for that choice to be a free choice, there must be some alternative that I could have brought about, but didn't bring about at the moment of choice. That's not necessarily a part of this theological compatibilist view, because freedom in the compatibilist sense doesn't require a principle alternate possibilities. You can have this thinned out account of freedom where freedom is just doing what I desire. Now, many people think that something like a version of theological compatibilism just is what people in the Reformed tradition believe. And indeed, there are plenty of people within the Reformed tradition who would affirm that as well, both historic theologians in the tradition and contemporary people who write on these things. However, one of the things I wanted to do in this book on deviant Calvinism was to ask whether that's the only option that's available to someone within the Reformed tradition. Now, the interesting thing, it seems to me, is that there may be reason for thinking that this is not the only viable option, historically speaking. So in addition to there being a bunch of theologians who say, yes, we're Reformed, and yes, we're determinists of a kind, we're compatibilists, there are other Reformed theologians who want to resist the assimilation of Reformed theology to determinism. To take just one example, the Dutch theologian Gerrit Burkauer, who wrote a series called Studies in Dogmatics in the later part of the 20th century, and whose work has been somewhat influential in Reformed theology, and his works were translated into English, wrote a book called Election, that is to say about the doctrine of predestination. And the opening chapter is all about how it is the case that the Reformed tradition is not deterministic in nature, that to be Reformed is not to be someone who's a theological determinist. And he's not the only one. There are a number of other Reformed theologians who've taken this sort of a view. Now, you might think, well, maybe they're just theologically and, con and um, conceptually confused, and they ought to have been determinists because of their theological um, predilections when, in fact, they weren't. But it seems to me interesting that a number of prominent Reformed thinkers either don't align themselves with determinism or say things which seem to suggest that they think that the Reformed tradition isn't determinist in nature. There's also been, alongside that, some work done in the last 10-15 years by a bunch of uh, historians of theology who've worked on the development of Reformed theology uh, in, the, in its early stages, in the first sort of two centuries of its life. And who've come to the conclusion that although the reformers and the generation that came after them certainly did think of the will being in bondage to sin, that's the, that's the phrase that they use, the bondage, bondage of the will, they didn't necessarily think that, that part and parcel of that view was that um, all our choices were determined. In fact, some of these thinkers maintain that these uh, reformed theologians of an earlier generation seemed to take the view that there are some choices that we really do have alternate possibilities with respect to. Rather than talking about the principle of alternate possibilities, which philosophers today do when thinking about free will, these earlier theologians talked about synchronic contingency, that at the moment of choice you have some kind of alternative, and this is a view that they found reaching back to early generations in medieval theology from Don Scotus and his followers. 
Now, what I tried to do in the chapter on libertarian Calvinism was explore the sort of view that's been suggested by some of these historians of theology who've looked back to earlier aspects of the Reformed tradition, and to take some of that material and to look at the question of whether or not someone who's Reformed could actually hold to something other than determinism when it comes to human free choice. So libertarian Calvinism is an attempt to do that. Now that's a lot of background, but I think it's important to get some kind of conceptual context for why it is that I decided to write this chapter that's caused some controversy. itself then, that is to say that the libertarian Calvinist view is something like this. Imagine that instead of being compatibilists, instead of thinking that determinism, theological determinism is consistent with human freedom, imagine that we were incompatibilists. Imagine that we thought that determinism was inconsistent with human freedom. Now, of course, there are those who are incompatibilists who are hard determinists, you know, who think just determinism is true and we don't have freedom. There are incompatibilists who think determinism is incompatible with human freedom, and we do have human freedom, in which case determinism is false. I wanted to take a slightly different view from those two and say something like this. Perhaps it's true that certain actions are determined by God, but that certain actions are not determined by God. He foresees them and he permits them, that's true, but he permits them to obtain in such a way that we really have alternatives at the moment of choice. Now, that would still be a version of incompatibilism in this respect, that it would be true that determinism, strictly speaking, is incompatible with human free will, and there would be a certain class of actions that would be determined, and we wouldn't be free with respect to them, and there'd be another class of actions that we would be free with respect to, and they wouldn't be determined. So incompatibilism would still be true, but the idea is that there are a class of actions that are determined by God, and a class of actions that are not determined by God. Now, the class of actions that are determined by God would be those actions that have to do with human salvation. And this ties in with this idea that the reformers have of the bondage of the will. And the reformers claim something like this. Because of the fall of Adam and Eve, human beings are in bondage to sin. And we are incapable, in and of ourselves, of turning to God and asking for forgiveness and being saved through the work of Christ. We can't do that because we're morally vitiated. We have this moral corruption and are in bondage, bondage to sin. Only God can do that. And it's, so it's an act of sheer grace that we're saved at all by God. And it has to be entirely an act of grace, not one that, that I can contribute to in any way. So the bondage of sin view means, uh, as I've construed in libertarian Calvinism, that God brings about a state of affairs in which those actions pertaining to my salvation are actions that I have no freedom with respect to, except that I am free to sin. But I'm not free to choose salvation. That must be determined by God. So that actions having to do with my turning to God and being saved are actions that are determined by God. But that doesn't necessarily mean that all my actions are determined. 
indeed it may well be that in all sorts of momentous and important choices in my life that don't have to do with my salvation, I am free and I really have this kind of something like a libertarian account of freedom. So that, for example, in choosing my spouse, I could have chosen one person rather than another. Choosing which candidate I vote for in elections, I could choose one candidate rather than another. You know, right down to the most apparently trivial things about which food I choose to eat, I could choose one thing rather than another. You're thinking that those actions, though, are both foreknown and foreordained, even though they're not determined, right? Right, they're foreknown and foreordained in some sense, that's true, but they're not ones that God is causing to bring about. So uh, it's not the case that those actions are ones that are, you know, caused directly by God. Those are ones that I, that I bring about, but God brings about circumstances in which I'm able to do one thing rather than another. Now, of course, it might also be worth saying, I guess, Many people who are theological libertarians, in other words, that think that we do have human free will uh, that includes something like a principle of alternate possibilities, many of those people would hold to something like a version of libertarian capitalism in this respect, that they, they are going to allow that there are going to be some actions that are, you know, we don't have free will with respect to, and we, we're not morally responsible for those actions. You know, if, you, if someone uses a, uh, if a doctor uses a patella hammer on your knee and your knee jerks out, I mean, that's an action of your body, but you're not morally responsible for your knee jerking out because it's a reflex. So I, I suppose that much is not so strange from the libertarian point of view. What's difficult to swallow for some people is the particular way I've construed the scope of actions that we have freedom with respect to and actions that we don't have freedom with respect to, on the one hand. And on the, on, on the other hand, the way in which I've sought to apply that to the reformed tradition rather than said, well, this is a view that's not reformed, but it's sort of in the neighborhood of some of the questions that reformed theologians have thought about. Just saying that in some of our actions, we have libertarian freedom and in others we don't. That's not controversial. A lot of philosophers who believe in libertarian free will think that only a small percentage of our actions uh, are free actions. Right. And so they think in most circumstances, we don't have an ability to do otherwise. Right. Exactly, uh, and, and theologically, even open theists will admit that, for instance, God har hardened Pharaoh's heart. Right. They don't. They don't think that all of our actions are free, and that God could just kind of take it away, or limit it, or override it for any yep. any reason that He has. There's something that's hard to understand for me about your view, though. What's the motivation for believing in libertarian freedom? if it's not required for more responsibility. So we'd be responsible for our actions, even in a world where we had no libertarian freedom for any action. Why would you think that you'd be morally responsible for um, actions where you had no libertarian freedom, given the libertarian Calvinist view? Uh, because you're responsible, for instance, for your rejecting the gospel if you're not one of the elect, and yet you didn't you didn't have freedom with respect to that. Well, what if you didn't have freedom with respect to anything? Wouldn't you still be responsible because it would still be the case that the, the choices or the actions came from you, that they were yours in the compatibilist sense? Right. In the case of you rejecting the gospel, let's say, I suppose the idea is something like this, that, yeah, you are morally responsible. You have, um, you, you make a choice there. So, uh, let me see if I can try and explain this. Um, the, an example I use in the book is someone who might be addi addicted to certain substances. 
uh, say someone who's an alcoholic or something like that, so that certain actions might just be out of their metaphysical reach, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, there are certain actions that they can do, they yeah. can have choices about, you know, do I have another drink or not? Do I have a sandwich or not? You know, what do I do next kind of thing? Um, but certain actions that are, uh, in some sense, out of the, the metaphysical reach, like, can I quit the drinking immediately and without any psychological or physical effects? Answer, no, you can't. That's just not within your reach now that you've become, you know, physically and psychologically addicted to the substance. But let's think about those actions which pertain to the, the particularities of the substance abuse. You know, so I'm not free to do certain sorts of actions with respect to the substance abuse. I can't just immediately stop the drinking uh, forthwith and without further ado. And there are deleterious consequences. That's not within my purview. But there are other things that I can do. Um, so I can freely continue to drink. I can freely decide whether to have one drink or two or ten. Um, I can freely drink, decide what kind of liquor I take into my body in order to feed my addiction and so on. So it looks like even in the case of those sorts of actions which have to do with the addiction itself, there are, we might think, uh, actions that I do have some freedom with respect to there and others that I don't have freedom with respect to. I'm not free to just give up drinking forthwith and without further ado, but I can choose what it is that i drink and how much and when sure um, and, and you, could, you could imagine that you're so addicted that like literally you can't say no to a drink like if i say oliver right. have a beer you like you're literally unfree to say no right but what a what a libertarian is going to say is that you're responsible even for unfreely it, it looks like it's unfree you're accepting this beer just now but a libertarian usually is going to say that you're responsible because Earlier on, you freely made yourself into the kind of person that couldn't say no. Right, right, exactly. And I think, so, the, what the, what the uh, Defender of Libertarian Calvinism has got to do then is to find some kind of theological analogue to that and sort of say, w w what analogue do we have, theologically speaking, to something like this idea in the free will literature where you're morally responsible provided further upstream in your the the kind of chain of um, choices that you've made, you made some libertarianly free choice early on that led, you know, through various degenerate acts to you becoming addicted to to a particular substance. And there, I suppose, you are going to have certain theological obstacles to overcome, but these are obstacles that are, in some respect, common to uh, the Christian tradition. You know, all the all the different parts of the Christian tradition, and much depends thereon you paying your money and taking your choice as to which view on the transmission of sin and the or origin of human sin and so on one opts for. But it doesn't seem to me that the libertarian Calvinist is without options on that matter because you could tell a story according to which human beings uh, are now reaping the results of some series of actions that have led them into their morally vitiated condition right now. Um, I, I suppose provided one can give some story like that that seems plausible, then I suspect that one could get around the sort of worry that you have. M much would depend on being able to come up with a plausible account of the steps that are taken so that one is now in, a, in, in that kind of morally depraved situation, though. And there you get into a slightly different set of issues, though, about 
you know, what original sin is, how it's transmitted, how it is that I'm morally responsible for being born in this condition, you know, whether it makes sense to say that I'm morally responsible and so on and so forth. So I'm not, I'm not denying that there is a set of issues that the libertarian Calvinists would need to address there, and that they might be problematic. But to some extent, and this is, I suppose, ad hominem, I guess the libertarian Calvinists could say, yeah, there are a set of problems there, that's true, but it's a set of problems pertaining to original sin and the uh, transmission of sin and my moral responsibility for being in a state of sin that are common problems in the Christian tradition that we all have to figure out one way or another. So in that sense, I'm not, I'm not necessarily in a worse state than the determinist who has to give an account of those sorts of things as well. So libertarian Calvinism is that with respect to human salvation, it's all God, right? He has to choose you, and his choice of you implies that you will be saved and you can't get unsaved. Right. But the libertarian part is, yeah, but with respect to some other choices or actions, maybe we do have the kind of freedom that libertarians believe in. Yeah. Um, now, you're pretty clear in the book that you don't endorse libertarian Calvinism, but I think a lot of readers would be curious if you do believe that we have libertarian freedom. I don't. Is it because that you think it's an incoherent idea or that it's incompatible with scripture? You know, it's a good question that my uh, views on this matter have changed somewhat over the years, uh, which is part of the reason why I ended up writing libertarian Calvinism. But I still find myself within the compatibilist camp. So my views have changed in this respect, whereas I think previously I had a, a rather more disparaging view about the alternatives, you know, the alternatives being a kind of, um, the, the alternatives I'm talking about here being the kind of metaphysical live option, not all the possible alternatives, uh, of uh, libertarianism, of a theological variety. I now think that um, there's much to be said for libertarianism of a theological variety, but there are still aspects of libertarianism of a theological variety that seem to me deeply mysterious. And so, for that reason, I think theological compatibilism is uh, a better option. Do I think that theological compatibilism is the only view that's consistent with Scripture? I'm not sure I do think that, but I do think that um, theological compatibilism is consistent with Scripture. I think on a number of important metaphysical matters, and I think I say this in the book, Scripture is metaphysically underdetermined, and so part of the reason why we are saddled with so many of the long-standing and often vituperative theological disputes that we are in the Christian tradition is that the different parties can find um, biblical support for their views, which support different metaphysical frameworks, if you like. Um, so to take the example that we're using in, in the Deviant Calvinism book, there are those in the Reformed tradition who say, yeah, our version of compatibilism, you can find it in Scripture. There are Scriptures which support our view. But by the same token, there are those people who are theological libertarians who will say, well, you can find 
biblical passages that support our view as well. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that Scripture is confused or inconsistent or anything like that on the matter. What I'm saying is I think that Scripture itself, in the theological claims that it makes on these matters, may well be metaphysically underdetermined, and so that it's consistent with more than one metaphysical way of construing the theology, if you like. And that may well be a reason why, you know, we, we have these long-standing disputes that are difficult to resolve if they can be resolved this side of the grave. But my sense is that the preponderance of the biblical material is a better fit with a compatibilist view than an incompatibilist view. And, and for that, that's one important reason why I am still a compatibilist. Um, I think also, I, I mean, to be completely honest with you, one can't get away from the fact that one's been influenced by certain thinkers and works when being formed with respect to particular matters like this matter of human free will, which was obviously a fundamental philosophical and theological matter. And from from my part, my own formation in this matter was shaped in an important respect by reading people like Calvin and then later Luther on the bondage of the will and Jonathan Edwards. And of those three, I suppose Edwards in particular, whose views are, are, are really a watershed in Christian theology in that many people who now think of the Reformed, the Reformed tradition as being synonymous with determinism are thinking of the sort of determinism that one can derive from the work of Edwards, not really with the sort of views that one can associate with the earlier Reformed tr tradition. And there's some recent work that's been done to show that Edwards's work does represent a step change in Reformed theology from this earlier, more open-textured way of thinking about human freedom with respect to God's sovereignty and the view of Edwards in the early Enlightenment, which then, to some extent, shapes subsequent uh, agenda in Reformed theology. And I myself was, was influenced by Edwards at an early stage of my own development, and I think have, um, to some extent anyway, continued to find um, his influence um, compelling. It's interesting that you should bring up Edwards. I wanted to kind of hit you with one more objection along these lines before we move on. And I think it's maybe an objection that Edwards would be sympathetic to, even though his views are different than my theological views. And it, this is the kind of thinking that has been made popular by Peter Van Inwagen and his consequence yeah. argument against compatibilism. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, applied to this type of uh, theology, it would go something like, no one, no one of us ever had any control over the fact that God has this eternal plan. Mm. Let's suppose I'm not one of the elect, okay? Right. And then none of us ever had any control over whether that plan entails that Dale goes to hell. Right. And so, but then what's entailed by two things that no one ever had any control over, then no one ever had any control over what's entailed, which is that I go to hell. Or sorry, maybe I should just make it uh, not going to hell that what's entailed is that I sin yeah. and that I reject the gospel um, or refuse to hear it or something like that. And so, I mean, how can I be held blameworthy if at no time I or anybody else had any way to kind of get off of that train? Yeah. It looks like it was just, it was going to happen. Uh, just like we don't blame people for, I don't know, having a genetic disease. Mm how can we blame them for rejecting the gospel? I mean, I think you get a, a really fundamental theological problem and how one addresses that theological problem if one is a theological compatibilist is, is going to be different from how one addresses 
a similar sort of problem. It's not exactly the same problem if you're a theological libertarian. I, mean, I do think that really that is the the nodal one of the nodal issues, perhaps the nodal issue for someone who's a theological compatibilist. And I am a compatibilist who feels the force of that. I mean, I think there are various evasions that have been used in the theological literature to try and get around that. Going all the way back to the biblical tradition, I mean, if one looks in in uh, the letter to the Romans, when uh, Paul is dealing with this whole matter of predestination in the latter part of Romans, he ends up, you know, be saying, you know, well, you know, if God makes some vessels for wrath and uh, dishonor and some for honor, you know, who, you know, how can he charge us for the fact that we're made vessels for dishonor rather than honor? In other words, that we're made in order that we go to hell rather than go to heaven. It's not our fault. And his response to that isn't so much, well, here's a, here's a finely crafted argument for the conclusion that no, that, that uh, supposition is false. But rather, it's a kind of rhetorical device where he simply says, who are you, O man, to question what God has done? But in fairness to what you find in the, in the letter to the Romans, I think that is a, a way of addressing the question that you find elsewhere in Scripture, perhaps. I think of um, the book of Job, for example. You know, when one thinks of theodicy questions, well, Job's friends give all the stock and trade theodicy answers in uh, in the kind of outline as to why it is that Job's suffering. When God turns up at the end of the book, he says they've got it all wrong, but he doesn't go then to explain to Job why it is that Job is suffering. You know, you, you weren't responsible. It turns out that I allowed Satan to come and do all these things to you. Uh, he simply questions Job about, well, who who are you to um, speak to me as I, you know, as I address you out of the whirlwind, so to speak. So I do think that there's an attempt to evade those sorts of questions, or or sidestep them to some extent, to to consign them to that class of theological questions, which to some extent we simply don't have an adequate answer to this side of the grave. And I think those in the Reformed tradition who've tried to, to do that and more broadly in the Augustinian tradition who tried to do that, are, to be fair to them, really attempting, I think, at their best to do something similar to what we find in the kind of Pauline literature. But I have to say, with um, with obviously great reverence when it comes to people like St. Paul and, and the, the great saints that have gone before me, uh, I do feel the force of that question, and I do worry that these sorts of strategies in, in attempting to meet the question are are not really adequate because it does look like you know well why am i condemned to hell why am i a sinner who re rejects the gospel if these things are ordained by god and i'm not free to uh, choose one thing rather than another um, it looks like i'm being condemned on the basis of simply what god ordains as the case and i don't have a have, have um, a choice in the matter at all and that seems to be a problem so I think that is a problem. How how can one address that? Well, I th of course, in the background here is the issue of the scope of salvation. And interestingly enough, I suppose if we were to say, well, it just transpires that God has ordained that all people are saved and members of the elect and none perish in hell everlastingly, we might feel less troubled by the fact that that view also is consistent with the kind of logic of the Reformed tradition and Augustinianism and this, this sort of absolute sovereignty of God uh, and so on. It's the same sort of setup. The only difference really is not in terms of 
how God determines what happens, but what it is that he determines that happens. And if it turns out the scope of salvation is, is much broader than, than some people have thought in the Christian tradition, in fact many people have thought in the Christian tradition, I guess to some extent that might ameliorate the concern that um, some people raise with respect to this question. So by the scope of salvation you mean for, you know, whether 1% are saved or whether 100% or something 50%? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, how yeah, how many people end up in heaven, as it were, or how many people are ultimately united to God, or whatever the nomenclature uh, one wants to use is, that, yeah, how many people are within the ambit of salvation? And if it turns out that every human being is in, within the ambit of salvation and, and is included in salvation and is saved, well, then I guess that's one way of meeting the problem. You, you discuss conditional universalism and even universalism in your book quite a bit. Do you hope that universalism is true? Um, you know, the question of universalism is something that I keep coming back to in my work because it's an existential question for me. I mean, it's, um, it's an existential question for precisely the reasons I've just been outlining. Because if I hold to a version of theological compatibilism, then the exactly the question that you've raised about, well, it, turned, it looks like I'm not responsible for myself. You know, fundamentally, in one respect, I'm not responsible for the outcome of the choices that I make with respect to my, my eternity. That is a really difficult question. And I keep, in a sense, I keep circling around it. Um, trying to figure out, well, have I misunderstood? Is there something I've not um, taken sufficiently seriously? So universalism is something which I have come back to time and again. And happily for me, I've been able to discuss these matters um, over the years with a number of people who've worked on this topic, people like Robin Parry, who's a good friend of mine, and um, a number of others and have learned a lot from them. In, in some respects, actually, conversations with someone like Robin have only complicated things for me because I think his work on evangelical universalism has made a really good case for the view that one could be both an evangelical and take scripture very seriously indeed and be universalist. You know, you can find, at least Robin thinks you can find an account of universalism that's consistent with scripture, and he's not the only one who thinks that there are a number of other people like Brad Jersak and others who've taken a similar sort of view from a more theological perspective, as well as those like Eric Wrighton and others who've taken uh, taken a more philosophical approach to this, and Tom Talbot who've, who've come to similar sorts of conclusions. So I certainly feel the gravitational pull of universalism. I worry a little bit about universalism at the same time, however. Partly I worry about it because it's very much a minority voice in the Christian tradition. Someone like Karl Barth, the great Swiss theologian who's often accused of being a universalist, was himself worried about being tarred with the brush of universalism because I think he worried that his view would then be thought to be um, identical to that of Origen, and Origen's views on apocatastasis were anathematized by the early church. But Origen's account of universalism is not the only one out there. And interestingly enough, um, I think one can find a number of, uh, well, maybe one or two, maybe more than one or two, a, a small cluster of Christian theologians who've held to views of either near universalism or, or embraced universalism itself, who haven't been condemned. Gregory of Nyssa is one, for example, who's, who's held in great regard both in the Eastern and the Western churches, but who articulates a version of, of uh, universalism. So I have, I have concerns because it's a, very much a minority report in the tradition and has 
these unfortunate associations with Origen's views, which have been deemed outside the bounds of orthodoxy. But I suppose more fundamentally than that, I, I am concerned because I guess I feel that the biblical case for universalism is, as Scottish law says, not proven when it comes to certain criminal cases. I do see that there are passages in the New Testament, for example, that seem to press in the direction of universal salvation, and other passages in the New Testament that seem to press in the other direction, that, that sal the scope of salvation is, is uh, less than the total number of human beings. So there does seem to me to be a kind of tension in the New Testament, and much depends on which set of data you use to privilege the other. You know, do you use the universalistic sounding passages as your control to help you understand the more particularistic sounding passages, or vice versa? And of course, most people in the tradition have used the particularistic passages to as a control for the more universal sounding passages. But as um, as George Hunsinger, the Princeton theologian, once said to me, why do we think that that has to be it has to be the case that one uses the particularistic passages to control the universalistic passages. Why that way rather than the other way? You know, what, what sort of hermeneutical decision is at work there that means that you think that's the better way to go? So I do think there's a tension in the New Testament on this matter. And I guess my sense is that the preponderance of the New Testament is, is not to take the universalist view, although there are passages that, that press in that direction. Here I'm thinking, for example, the great hymn in, at the beginning of Colossians where all things are reconciled in Christ, which sounds pretty universalistic to me. Um, but then, of course, you've got to temper it with other pl other places, say, in the canonical Gospels, uh, Matthew 24 and 25, for example, about the sheep and the goats, or what Christ says about the narrow way and few that find it, and so on in, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, and so forth. So this is a convoluted and difficult question, I think, uh, it's a particularly convoluted and difficult question for someone like me who's, who's um, you know, kind of Augustinian about these things, you know, somebody in the Reformed tradition who thinks that God does ordain all that comes to pass. And uh, I do think that in, in some respects, those who are Augustinians ought to feel what I'm calling the gravitational pull of universalism. I noticed in your book, it's, it seemed that you think that it's indisputable or it's, it's very clear in Scripture that God ordains all things that come to pass. Is that right? Because it seems to me a lot of Christians and Christian theologians don't think that. A lot more don't think that than would be universalists. A lot don't think that God ordains all that comes to pass? Yeah. They, think, they might think God foreknows everything, but they don't think that God foreordains everything. Oh, I see. I see. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, I, I do think that. I do think that God ordains all that comes to pass. That's right. As to, whether, uh, as to whether that's been the majority view in the tradition, I guess my sense is that there are certainly a, a lot of Christian theologians who've, who've thought that God ordains all that comes to pass. But I agree that there, there, is a there are a body of, perhaps a significant body of Christian theologians who've taken the, the, um, the kind of foreknowledge view as opposed to the ordination view on this matter.
Dr. Chris, I wonder what you would say to the following thought experiment. Of course, one consideration alongside the hermeneutical questions is what we think about the value of human autonomy and freedom. And the philosopher William Hasker, actually in a written debate with your mentor, Paul Helm, gives this thought experiment. He says, what if there was a pill that you could give to your newborn child? And there's no risk to her at all if you give this to her. If you give her the pill, it will guarantee that she will always love you. So it will take away her ability to freely reject you. And Hasker asks, would you give that pill to a child? He thinks that any parent would not give the pill on the grounds that freely chosen love is more valuable than love that isn't freely chosen. So my question is, would you give a pill like that to your own newborn? Um, well, this is obviously a trap, isn't it? But, um, wow. Would I give a pill to my newborn child that would ensure with no deleterious consequences to my child that that child would always love me? Well, I guess my sense, my intuition is no, I wouldn't. But then, of course, you're going to say, well, isn't that analogous, as, as Hasker does to, to Helm, isn't that analogous to exactly what you think God does do, that he, you know, doesn't introduce a pill, but he brings it about that um, it efficaciously brings it about that you you love him and um, do so because uh, you know in a sense he's brought about that set of circumstances you know it's not like you have a choice about it um, you could really love God or reject God you're just in some sense programmed to to love him I guess that's where it's going right right I mean I think the way to try and deal with that objection is to try and meet it by pointing out the disanalogies between the two examples. I mean, the case in the case of the pill, you're introducing something to a person in order to bring about a desired effect that presumably otherwise wouldn't obtain. But that's not the case, the relevant changes haven't been made with respect to God and his creatures. It's not like there's an extant entity that you introduce something to in order to bring about some desired effect. And if you didn't bring about, if you didn't introduce that, that agent in order to bring about a desired effect, you know, something else would obtain that would be beyond your power or something like that. Once we start talking about it in those terms, it becomes apparent, I think, that the two examples aren't uh, analogous in the way that Haskell wants them to be. Um, because, of course, we're radically dependent on God. He's our creator. Uh, we wouldn't exist without God. So it's not the case that we are something like agents independent of God, and God somehow brings it about that we, like zombies, have to love God, and we can't do anything else. No, it's not like that at all. It's rather that God creates us and sustains us. And because he's our creator and sustainer, he brings us into being, and he enables us to do certain sorts of things and not to other sorts of certain sorts of things, in virtue of the fact that he has created us one way rather than another. And my sense is that it's perfectly appropriate for God to, to, to do that, in virtue of the fact that he is our creator, the one who gives us being in the, in the first place. Dr. Crisp, thanks for talking with us. Thank you very much for having me.
This episode's thinking music was Night Owl by Broke for Free. Do you enjoy listening to the Trinity's podcast? There are four ways you can show us some love in return. First, share the blog post for this episode on whatever social media you use, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, or Google+. Second, you can leave us a rating and a brief review in the iTunes store and at Stitcher. For step-by-step directions on how to do this, visit trinities.org blog review. Doing this will help other people who are interested in theology to find this podcast. Third, you can donate to the cause by clicking the orange donate buttons to the right of any blog post. Do you think these episodes are worth a quarter apiece? If so, you can donate a dollar each month via PayPal. And of course, any one-time gift is much appreciated. Fourth, you can send us some brief, to-the-point audio feedback for possible incorporation into a future episode. We would love to hear your question or your comment in your voice. The upload link for your audio file is on the blog post for any episode. To sum up, you can share, rate, donate, and talk back. Thanks for listening and for helping us to get the word out that God wants us to love him in part by thinking hard about him. for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.